0: John, chapter 15, verses 9, 10 and 11. I'm calling this instructions for lasting joy. And in John, chapter 15, beginning in verse 9, Jesus says, as the father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you, that your joy may be full. Jesus has been sharing some farewell comments with his friends. You'll remember that he is leaving the upper room and he is preparing to walk across the temple precincts down the Kidron Valley across to what's called the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. And in the earlier chapter at the beginning of chapter 15, Jesus has used the metaphor of a vine and branches to communicate the essential elements of what it means to abide in him as branches. We must abide and as friends, we must obey. Jesus told his disciples that fruitless branches are removed and fruitful branches are pruned. Jesus wants his disciples to abide literally hang on, stay on. Remain, not in the static sense, but in a living and a growing and a nourishing sense. As a matter of fact, later Paul the Apostle would write to the believers in the Lycus Valley in what you and I call modern Turkey. There was a township there called Colossae. And in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul writes, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. Remember how you received Jesus Christ as Lord. By grace. Through faith. And because you received Jesus by grace. And by faith. You walk with Jesus by grace through faith. It was Roy Lauren who said... Abiding is faithful persistence in our fellowship with Christ. I love that definition. Abiding is faithful persistence in our fellowship with Christ. We are connected. And because we are connected to the Son, we are connected to the Father. Faithful persistence. Empowered by love demonstrated by joy. We abide in the person of Jesus. Abide in me, he says. And we abide in the presence of Jesus and I in you. And it becomes, if you will, the very definition of intimacy. If you were to make an intimate cake, it would consist of these three ingredients. Feelings, interests, activities. And so you can imagine that to remain, to abide, you participate in those things that are interesting, the activities and the feelings of the person loved. And so, again, all of those things, feelings, interests, activities are found in the relationship between the branch and the vine. We abide by faith. It's trust. We abide in prayer. That's communication. We abide in obedience. That's demonstration. And so Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, in verse 10. We abound in joy, in verse 11. Abiding love leads to abounding joy. That's the principle, that's the instructions. If you abide in love, you will abound in joy. And this becomes very, very important because earlier Jesus has spoken about peace and now he speaks about love and joy. Remember, we've already talked about the fact that Paul mentioned love is the fruit of the spirit. Love is intangible, invisible, internal. You can't touch it, taste it, smell it. You can't wrap it up in a gift and and give it away because it is internal and invisible. It manifests itself in joy and peace and goodness. It becomes the outward expression of the inward conviction of love. And so, no wonder Paul mentions it as the fruit. And that's how we experience love. It is the presence of joy. It is the presence of peace in the heart of the believer that provides ample evidence of love. And because we love Jesus, we keep His commandments. And as we keep His commandments, we abide or remain in His love, and we continue to experience an ever deepening and an ever enriching joy. It was the theologian Henri Nguyen who made the famous statement. Joy is the experience of knowing that you are unconditionally loved. Now, that statement is going to be comforting to some, but it's going to be upsetting to others. And the reason why it's going to be comforting to some, because those who have experienced unconditional love have experienced unconditional joy. But for those of you who question and you say, I don't even know what that's like, I don't know what it's like to enter into that kind of friendship or fellowship or love. And so how can I be expected to experience joy when I've never experienced love? But that's what we discover in this passage, that love precedes joy. I read an interesting illustration by Roy Lauren. He was a close companion of Billy Graham and a Bible teacher. And he wrote the Japanese grow forest trees and flower pots. And some of these miniature trees are a 100 years old and are only two or three feet high. The gardener, instead of fertilizing the tree and trying to get them to grow large, takes extraordinary pains to keep them little from the time the seeds are first planted. They are starved and stunted. And when the tender bud appears, they are nipped off and the tree remains a dwarf. He goes on and he writes, our troubles are largely due to doing the same thing with our lives. We don't allow our souls to grow because we rob ourselves of spiritual nourishment and we shut the power of God's word Out of our hearts, we are dwarf Christians when we might be strong, giant Christians. What an excellent analogy. Because the plant will only grow as big as the pot. And when there is extraordinary circumstances associated, we find ourselves starved and stunted when we are cut off from love from joy. Clearly, Jesus does not want his disciples to be starved and stunted. And see, part of the the challenge that we have as Christians is to remember the context in which this passage is taking place. Jesus is going to die. He's going to go to a place where he is going to be arrested and incarcerated, and tortured, and killed. And so, he's going to leave the instructions for lasting joy. I know it's hard to comprehend, but sometimes believers feel like little bonsai trees, don't they? Stunted, incarcerated, starved, and stunted. Stunted. And so we discover something in order to connect to love and in order to connect to joy, we have to stay connected to the son. And when we're connected to the son, we're connected to the father. And so lasting joy is found in the very heart of Jesus. Look, Jesus begins with an exclamation in verse nine, which leads to an exhortation in verse ten. And at the end of verse 10, he gives an example. Continue in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. Even as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. The way that Jesus declares his connection to the father is the father has sent him. The father has spoken to them. Everything that the father has said to them, he has accomplished. And so Jesus claims for himself conformity to his father's will. What the father has asked him to do, he has done. And consequently, he has unbroken fellowship in the father's love. Now, this is the claim of a person who never sins. Jesus gives us a way into his heart and the way that he gives us into his heart is by declaring to us the way that he himself has entered the father's heart. This, these things, he says, I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Because guess what? They're about to experience a catastrophe. Look in verse nine. Believing in, in Christ's love. He says, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Now, i got to tell you something. The most terrible, the worst, the most difficult thing to preach on is the love of God. Do you want to know why? Because I could never do a good job. I can never do an adequate job. Imagine that it was my job this morning to tell you about oceans. And so the way that I begin my teaching is I bring out a glass of seawater and I go, this is a glass of seawater. I, am I adequately talking about the ocean? No, I could pour it on top of you and I could go, this is what it's like to be at the beach, but you wouldn't get it. And so finally, in frustration, I I would say, you know what? We're all going to save our money. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to go to California and I'm going to take you to Dana Point and we're going to wade into the water. And some of you go, yes, that's the way to enjoy the beach. But even if I brought you to the beach and even if I waded you into the water, if it were still my job to tell you about every ocean, and every beach. By taking you to Dana Point, could I tell you about every piece of water on every beach, on every continent, on the land? There's just no way that I would be able to do that. But Jesus says the remarkable thing as the father loved me. I also have loved you. The Bible teaches that the Father loves the Son. And this becomes an important statement just from a theological standpoint because the statement is meaningless if the Father is the Son. If Jesus says, I love me because I am the Father and I am the Son and I am the Holy Spirit, it becomes a meaningful or a meaningless statement. If I said, there's three people in the world that I admire most. Me, myself, and I. Yeah, you guys laugh because it becomes a meaningless statement. The Bible teaches that the Father is not the Son. And the Father and Son are not the Spirit. Well, I thought the Bible says there's only one God. That's true. There is only one God. There aren't three gods. The Father is God and the Son is God and the Holy Spirit is God. The Bible teaches that the Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world in John 17, 24. Because the Father loves the Son, the Father has put everything into the Son's hands, it says in John chapter 3, verse 35. The Father has revealed all things to the Son, it says in John chapter 5, verse 20. The Scripture reminds us that Jesus is in constant Contact with the Father connected to the Father and that the fellowship of the Father with the Son produces joy. How do we know that? Psalm 1611, you will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so we see as the Father loved me, he gives the source of love and the measure of love and the fact of love, I also have loved you. Now, I've told you over and over again that this was one of those things that annoyed me the most about Christians and Christianity. When I was growing up, I was surrounded by Jesus people and Jesus freaks. And they would come to me and they'd say, Hey, did God loves you. Jesus loves you. And I got so sick of it because it seemed so, so weird and so disconnected from from at least from my reality. I would put up with it and put up with it. And finally, I just got sick of these people saying that God loves you and Jesus loves you. And I just said, look, prove it to me. Prove it. Prove to me that God loved me. And this person said well, you know, I believe in the cosmic presence of of an ethereal God that pervades reality. And I go, you know, that's weird. That makes no sense to me whatsoever. And so when people would say to me, God loves you or Jesus loves you, I would just say, prove it. And I would say, prove it. And I would say, prove it. Until finally somebody came up with the right answer. Someone said, God loves you. And I said, prove it. And he goes, Romans chapter five, here in his love, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. You want proof? A real God entered time and space. You want proof? God becomes a man and dies in your your place. You want proof? He undergoes and sacrifices so that you don't have to. He lives and dies for you and rises from the dead in reality. So Jesus says, as the father loved me, I love you. And it becomes an amazing statement. I mean, it's pretty cool when someone says, hey, you know what? I'm aware of your existence. But when a person says, not only am I aware of your existence, I actually admire you. Imagine they go from awareness to admiration And then they say to you, you know, and I'm actually even kind of fond of you. Now, that wouldn't mean a whole lot to some of you, except for the reality of the person who's making the statement. It's the person of Jesus Christ. Unless we had the revelation of the scripture to point us to the reality that we could experience not an imperfect human love. Even if we thought, okay. Is it possible to experience a perfect human love? Then we go beyond the imperfect to the perfect human love, but that we can experience the love of God and we can experience the same love that the Son experiences from the Father. It should cause you to have kind of a mental and emotional check. What are you saying? What are you saying that God loves you and Jesus loves you. But He doesn't just simply love you. He loves you with the same love that the Father loves the Son. Later, Jesus will pray in John 17, 26, and I've declared to them your name and you will declare it that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. What? I have a friend from the South. And when someone says something really pretty amazing, she goes... Shut up! Now I grew up in a place where when you you don't say shut up. You know my dad would say, "What did you say?" Yeah, I'll slap that right out of your mouth. You don't say shut up. Now when my friend says shut up, I don't think she means shut up like stop talking. She means shut up like. I can't believe what you're saying is true because I tried it on her because I said something and she goes, shut up. And then I shut up and well, aren't you going to say something else? You just told me to shut up. I didn't really mean it that way. It's sort of like when kids say sick. I go, what? What? You're not well? No, it's cool. Hey, wait, I grew up in a world where sick meant bad, ill. Oh, no, no, you're totally out of it. We come up with a word and then we try to fill that word with, with a meaning that we can somehow get in touch with. Jesus doesn't simply declare his love, which would be great to hear in and of itself. If Jesus goes, I love you, it's pretty cool when your children call you on Mother's Day and say, I love you, or they give you a gift or or whatever. But when Jesus says, I love you. He doesn't simply declare his love. He gives us the measure of his love. And it becomes incomprehensible. Incomprehensible. It's the kind of love that existed in the Godhead from all eternity. It's the kind of love that has always existed and continues to exist and then exists forever. We get a little picture of it in the Bible. It was Martin Luther who called John 316 the heart of the gospel. Or the gospel in miniature. Luther said, God, the greatest lover, so loved the greatest degree, the world, the greatest number, that he gave the greatest act, his only begotten son, the greatest gift, that whosoever the greatest invitation believes the greatest simplicity In him, the greatest person should not perish the greatest deliverance, but the greatest difference. Have the greatest certainty, everlasting life, the greatest possession. Jesus begins with a declaration of love, and then he gives gives a hint of the measure of a love, and then he gives us a challenge to continue in that love. What? The fact that he says it is incomprehensible. The fact that he gives it is incomprehensible. The everlasting, eternal measure is incomprehensible. The sacrifice is incomprehensible. So how do we abide? And remain in something that we don't comprehend. And Jesus gives us the clue. The Son is connected to the Father. And we are connected to the Son. And we are connected in such a way that we can be fruitful. And He gives us the clue at the end of the verse Abide in my love, what? Persistently pursue friendship and relationship with the Lord, draw near, continue. And then it says in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide or remain or persist. In my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love, the commandments of Jesus connects us to Jesus. The word of God connected Jesus to the father, the son loves the disciples the way the father loves him. Roger Fredrickson writes, this is the love that has sought them out, that has called them into life, which now holds them and sends them out into a world to continue the mission. What an awesome yet tender reality. But these frail, struggling men are to love one another as Jesus loves them. This isn't an option, but a command. It is an impossibility unless they abide, remain persist in his love. Love becomes possible the moment, not that you simply believe that it exists, but that you enter in and connect. The love of Jesus isn't some burning in your bosom it isn't a warm fuzzy feeling that wells up in the pit of your stomach it isn't sloppy agape it isn't a sentimental feeling that you get when you listen to Christian radio or you watch Christian television or you even go to church and you go hey you know that I just felt so good and I felt so uplifted and and I I felt so motivated but guess what there is a love that is rooted and grounded in obedience to the Son who is in turn obedient to the Father. This is the kind of love and this is the kind of joy and this is the kind of peace that isn't based on the circumstances that you know you're going to experience. You're going to experience illness and you're going to experience the possibility of some failure or some defeat or some disaster or some, some problem. There is hardly A moment that goes by. When someone doesn't tell me that, hey, my husband has left me, my wife has left me, I've been diagnosed with cancer, hey, my sister, um, her husband has been having an affair, hey, this has happened and this has happened and that has happened and there is pain and hurt and crisis and hardship and disappointment. And because the disciples are going to face an experience that defies the imagination as their beloved Jesus is taken from them. And then their beloved Jesus is horribly tortured. And then their beloved Jesus is crucified and killed. This is a terrifying experience. And so how do you have joy like in the midst of that kind of circumstance? Again, Frederickson writes, joy is an unexpected gift growing out of our intimate relationship with this one we love and we serve. While happiness, even though it is frantically sought as some kind of product that can be possessed, turns out to be a disappointing illusion. Happiness is, is like the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, which doesn't exist. People will often say, I just want to be happy. I want to be happy. I want to be happy on the job. I want to be happy in my friendship. I want to be happy in my relationship. I want to be happy. But do you realize that the Bible nowhere calls the Christian to be happy? But the Bible everywhere calls the Christian to joy. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. That's what it says in verse 12. The love that Jesus speaks of is based on a whole new set of motives. And what motivates a Christian isn't a set of rules and regulations, but a new condition in life. Love becomes the standard of behavior because we're motivated not in order to please God or to satisfy God, but because we are connected to the Son and we are connected to the Father through the Son. And in verse 11, it says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. The word translated joy, by the way. Is the Greek verb Kara in the early church when mothers and fathers would have children, their two favorite names were Irene, which means peace and Kara, which means joy. And the word spoke of an inner gladness, a deep seated center, if you will, pleasure. It was internal. It was the depth of assurance. It was a confidence that ignites a cheerful heart. It is a cheerful heart that leads to cheerful behavior. It's a deep seated sense, a profound sense where the origin of that is God himself. My pastor used to give an illustration of the difference between joy and happiness, and I'll never forget it because I played football and he used a football illustration and he said, Okay, imagine you're a football player. I go, Okay, I can imagine that. Imagine you're a halfback, that's exactly what I am. Imagine you get the ball handed off to you, and I said, I've had it happen hundreds of times. Imagine you carry the ball and you slip between the guard and the tackle. You defeat the defensive back and you run 90 yards for a touchdown and the crowd is cheering. How do you feel? I'm happy! And then you turn around and you hear a whistle blow and there's a yellow flag on the field. I am sad. My... Mental and emotional bubble has just burst. Now, I might have a deep seated sense of joy because I'm a football player and I just love the game, but my behavior can't be described as joyous. That's not what's happening. You see, the roots of joy cannot be found in earthly things or material possessions. You can't achieve joy. You might achieve a measure of happiness. The joy of the Lord is different than inheriting a billion dollars or winning a million dollars. It's different from winning a gold medal in the Olympics. It's different from a Super Bowl ring. I've had the privilege of, of working with men and women who are outstanding athletes and they've come to the top of their, their business circumstances and there is an emptiness and a loneliness and a darkness and even a wickedness that's inside of them that can't be described as happiness. I read the story of a theology student who saw it. A young man skiing with one ski and he stopped beside the boy and he said, son, don't you know that you're supposed to have two skis? And the young lad looked up with his happy grin and he said, I know you're supposed to have two, but I don't have to. But, mister, you can have a lot of fun even if you only have one. With a snowboard. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know if it was a snowboard. We impose our own standards on other people. And we think them foolish or stupid if life's pleasures is found in the simplest of things. H.W. Webb Piblo said, joy is not gush. Joy is not jolliness. Joy is perfect acquiescence in God's will because the soul delights itself in God himself. That's why you can meet a person who's been diagnosed with cancer. You can meet a person whose husband or wife has been unfaithful. You can meet a person who's experiencing unbelievable hardship and pain. Does that mean that the hardship and the pain goes away? No, but there's a quiet Sense, a confident sense, a centered sense that, hey, you know what? Heaven is still real. I'm not going to hell. My sins are forgiven. I have everything that I need in Christ. Clearly, joy doesn't depend on circumstances. Happiness depends on happenings. But the joy of the Lord is internal and deep and it overrides the troubles and the sorrows. It springs, listen carefully, joy springs from a life that is connected to the Father and connected to the Son. And this is why when you are experiencing such weakness and darkness and emptiness and pain... That your pastor or your friend will say, pray, read the Bible. and You go, pray, read the Bible. Don't you realize I'm really disconnected? I know. It seems so simple and so obvious to say, connect, connect, make the connection, Oswald, St Chambers said, quote, the Bible talks plentifully about joy, but nowhere does it talk about a happy Christian. Happiness depends on what happens. Joy does not. Remember, Jesus Christ has joy and he prays that they might have my joy fulfilled in them. These things I have spoken to you. What things has Jesus spoken to them? The things that Jesus has spoken to them goes all the way back to the beginning of his ministry and the beginning of his message. These things I have spoken to you, I've come from God. Your God is my father. He sent me here. He sent me both with a plan and a mission, not only to fulfill prophecy, but to provide hope for you. That there's forgiveness for you. That there's love for you and hope for you and a reality for you that is deeply, deeply connected and that the plan of God has always had for you. Money is printed by printing presses on the earth. Gold and silver are dug from the dirt and burned and melted and stamped. But what. Printed money and gold and silver have in common is they're both from here, but joy is manufactured in heaven. You know how we know? Because the source of joy is the eternal living God, The love of God brings joy. So think about it. What's the recipe for abiding joy? The love of God brings joy. The presence of God brings joy. Victory over sin and death and hell brings joy. Repentance brings joy. You know how we know that? Luke 15, 7. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just people who need no repentance. And then in Luke fifteen ten it says, Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of angels over one sinner who repents. Guess what? Even though the Nuggets are doing really well in the playoffs, I don't think that the angels are going... Mellow! Mellow! Now, hey, I've got to be honest with you. They're playing like a real team, and I think that that's very, very cool. But guess what? I don't think it moves a single angel's wing. It doesn't disturb heaven in the least. But the moment that a person decides to turn from their sin and turn to the Savior... And believe, listen carefully, the promises of God in Christ. Joy is manufactured in heaven. And then it lands on the earth. Think about this. Worship brings joy. The Holy Spirit brings joy. The commandments of Christ and the will of God bring joy. Obeying and doing what God wants from us brings joy to the believers heart the presence of fellowship and believers bring joy guess what seeing people come to Christ brings joy you know what all of those things have in common they're supernatural they come from God they're deeply rooted in the character of God Giving brings joy. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2, Paul says that in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. What? You had, they had nothing. And then they gave everything. And joy showed up. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourself in heaven. Sacrifice brings joy. (laughs) I don't think there's any better example than a mother's love for her children. There was a math teacher who was speaking to a particular person. He said, now, James, I need you to figure out how to do this equation. Now, imagine you have a pie. And imagine you have eight brothers and sisters in yourself. And you have a mother and a father. father. That makes ten people. And you cut the pie fractionally. What portion of the pie is yours? One ninth. No, James, listen to me again. Mother, father, eight brothers and sisters, one pie. What portion of the pie is yours? And James goes, one ninth. He goes, don't you know math? He goes, yes, I know math and I know my mother. Because even with ten people, she's cutting it into nine slices. And she'll go without that's what we're talking about joy there are those people who will tell you that the opposite of joy is sadness and I think they're mistaken the opposite of joy isn't sadness but unbelief because remember what joy is it's found in heaven its source is in heaven It is manufactured by God in relationship to the sun. Joy flows from love. John Phillips wrote, joy is like a rainbow shining above our tears. Isn't that good? So how can Christians live without joy? I'm going to suggest to you that they can't. If love is the way into the heart of Jesus, and if joy is the word from Jesus's heart. Then there's only really one thing that remains. The will of his heart. And it's Christ's will. It's Christ's commandment. In verse 12, that you love one another as I have loved you. By the way, we're going to keep coming back to that. You want to know why? Why? Because Jesus keeps coming back to that. His sacrificial love becomes the norm. It becomes the standard. It becomes the limit. We're to love one another with the same fervency and honesty and humility and authenticity. And so Jesus gives us a way of staying connected to Him. We stay connected to him when we hear him, when we serve him, when we obey him. Now, you don't have to say it out loud. Have you ever loved somebody and they didn't really love you back? What did you do to try to demonstrate that love? To try to get close? Did you try to stay close? God loves you. He remains close. He stays close. Even though you don't sense his presence. Even though you don't know he's there. You know, one of the very first glimpses we get of our God in the Bible is that of a seeker. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, after Adam and Eve have ruined their circumstances, you hear a cry. The cry is, Adam, where are you? In commenting on that question in a Bible class, a teacher said, you can never be a preacher if you read it as though God were a policeman. Read it as though God we're a broken-hearted father looking for a lost child. Do you understand the difference? This is not a person who is compelling your behavior. This is a person committed to having a friendship and a relationship with you. How like a mother's love enduring, sacrificial. Heavenly Father I do pray Lord I pray that as we begin to explore what seems unknowable, unfathomable, impenetrable. but Lord as you show us bits and pieces, Of what it means to know you and what it means to love you. And what it means to experience joy. The joy that emerges from a deep connection. An immeasurable love. An eternal love. Lord, for many of us, it's way, way, way beyond our comprehension. And so, Lord, I pray for that person rather than comprehending that they would do the most simple and the most basic thing for a person who wants to understand what ocean means. That they will wade into the water. That they will soak themselves in its wetness. That, Lord, that they will experience what it means to feel the sand beneath their feet and the the water all around them. Lord, I pray that we could experience the love of God which is found in Christ Jesus which Paul says is incomprehensible, unknowable, but Lord that we would just know it even in its imperfection and incompleteness. If we could know it in an imperfect and an incomplete way. Lord, I pray that you would pour out your holy spirit. Lord, I pray that You will draw people towards Yourself. Lord, I pray that they would abandon sin. That they would turn from their idols. And that, Lord, that they would turn to You in repentance and love. That they would know that there's hope and forgiveness, that there's grace and that there's mercy. And even more than that, there's more than just forgiveness of sin. There is a positive righteousness that's given to us, that's imparted to us because of Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray for that person who finds themselves in a dark and an empty place, in a wicked place, a place absent peace and absent joy. Lord, I pray that You would fill their heart with peace and with joy because their heart has been filled with the love of God which is found in the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus said, I love You. Just like my Father loves me, I love You. Lord, we don't even pretend to understand it, but Lord, we pray that we could embrace it. (laughs) In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.